What's going on, everyone? It's time for the With a Bullet podcast. His name is Matt Golden. My name is Todd Golden. Matt, what's going on? We took a week off last week. Yeah, I know. I mean, we record. We were going to record on the same day that like um, the stuff at the Capitol was happening. Right. <laughs> so we decided to take a week off because um, we uh, were going to be talking about... Um, uh, underwhelming early 90s album charts like while a coup was happening. I have to be fully committed to talking about Vanilla Ice before I go record a podcast and with a insurrection taking place that day I was not in the mood to um, wax poetic about Vanilla Ice but I am in the mood to wax poetic about Vanilla Ice tonight. Th- that's good, yeah. Well, I don't have Vanilla Ice, but I have things that are similar to Vanilla Ice on this one. So. Yeah, we can explain. Um, this week's chart that I picked is the album chart from January 5th, 1991, which when we intended to record this would have been close to the date, but whatever. So January 5th, 1991 was not a good time for music. Um, right. What struck me about this chart is that a lot of these artists and or trends that they um, that they embodied were not long for the world. Thank God, because most of them are terrible. Um, we're talking about a lot of late hair metal. Um, you know, I, you know, I wanted to say there was new Jack swing on this. There's not that much of that. Uh, there was, there of, was some on my side. There's a little, but not, it's not like overwhelming. There's some bad soundtracks on this. Uh, you're starting to see country make its way into it and there's a fucking ass load of new kids on the block so yeah um this was a time where we really needed some change on the charts and i don't know that the top 40 or even the 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 album chart changed that much but you know this is basically the period right before alternative began to bubble into the consciousness and i'll talk a little bit about that as i go through some of the entries i have but yeah this was then no wonder I was so into classic rock at this period of time, because this oh, would have been yeah yeah classic rock interest period for me. And when you look at this album chart, you know why, because it's pretty bad. So buckle up. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna be amazing, <laughs> and it starts off amazing too with number forty, tripping the live fantastic by Paul McCartney. Um, double length Paul McCartney live album from the early nineties. It doesn't get much better than this. <laughs> this was put out to commemorate um Paul's Flowers in the Dirt tour, which was um his first tour in a decade and um his first tour to stop in the US since nineteen seventy-six. Um his set lists on this tour l- were a little bit more Beatles oriented um than they were back in the Wings days, which is reflected in the track list for this, which um seventeen of the twenty-eight tracks are Beatles songs. The rest are a mix of wing songs, covers, um, songs from the Flowers of the Dirt album that nobody cares about. Um, he's backed up on here by Linda, of course, um, Hamish Stewart from Average White Band, uh, Robbie McIntosh from The Pretenders, and a bunch of Faceless Session guys. Um, it basically sounds like it was recorded by Faceless Session guys. Uh, but most of the Beatles and Wing songs are pretty faithful to the originals. He even 
um, pulls out the analog synths for Jet and Band of the Run for this. But um, the one exception to that is um, things we've say, seen today, um, which he somehow works into like a Steve Winwood type soft rock thing with a really long, wanky guitar solo, which um, kind of ruins that song. But of course, since this is Paul, there is a bunch of lame stage banter. Like he introduces Got to Get You Into Life my life as a song we wrote this morning and it i mean if i were at any of these concerts i would probably enjoy it but it doesn't really translate that well to record it's um i mean he sounds great as far as his voice goes but i mean the band just sounds like crap basically so i thought this album was going to ruin me forever (laughs) so i i have a story to tell about this album so i joined the BMG Music Club at some apparently some point in 1990, and I did it to get all the Led Zeppelin albums, which is to this day I still have. I, I don't I, I don't think I've ever rebought a Led Zeppelin album, so I still have them. And you know, if you remember the record deals back then, you basically got um, uh, like 11 or 12 CDs for like a penny. So mm-hmm. I did that, but then the deal is, of course, is you had to keep rejecting you know like every it's a classic record club story basically you have to reject the offerings that they give you or they try to charge you for them so i didn't do that and they sent me this album and i didn't know what to do i was supposed to send it back that's i think the deal Uh Uh, and i never did and i was like really really scared it was like gonna affect my credit and so i had this i think i still have it somewhere in a box but I had this album buried, like, as if to hide evidence, almost. At the <laughs> bottom of this, it was like a Coors Party Ball box. And, <laughs> uh, you know, another 1990s relic. But yeah. I, I was always afraid that this was going to follow me around, like, when it came time to start getting loans or bank accounts and shit. So I was worried about that for, like, well beyond the period where I should have been worried about it. So... I think it's still in a box somewhere. I can't vouch for that. I may have finally tossed it, you know, and probably laughed at it. But yeah, uh, Paul McCartney's live <laughs> album was going to ruin my life in the 1990s. Let's see. Well, since he mentioned it here, like Columbia House or BMG is probably going to track you down now. Well, I'm so, right, so you're screwed. I know. I'm right. I actually I could probably <laughs> run it over to them because they they shipped a lot of those out of Terre Haute. So. Um, I could probably just run over to uh, Sony, who owns that facility now, and just say, oh, here's your Paul McCartney album back. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, you were, I was part of the record club, and I feel bad that I kept this for 30 years, and so here you go. <laughs> right. I should do right. that. But... You should, yeah. But um, let's see, at 39 for you, we have Tesla with um, five-man acoustical jam. Jam. Um, anyway, I think I've said this before, but Tesla is probably the one hair metal band I can defend. Um, they did trade in quite a few of the tropes of hair metal because it was hard not to and still get support from your record company in this period of time. I mean, um, you know, like a lot of bands that were caught up in certain eras, you had to do certain things. Um, but they never really, at least as far as what they released as singles and videos and stuff, they never really put out any horrible tripe like a lot of their uh cohorts did i still uh-huh. quite enjoy love song quite a bit which was their big hit uh came out about yeah that's a good song i like that one 
yeah, about a year before this. Um, here it's in a near 10 minute version, um, which that's probably too long for that song. But and the hit off of this is a cover of Signs by the Five Man uh, Electrical Band, which gives you the kind of what they're trading on on the album title here. Um, and it wasn't terrible. I mean, it's, I, I'm not a huge fan of that song in general, but it's all right. Um, this was also one of the very first albums to cash in on the acoustic craze that had started the, in 1990 when MTV Unplugged debuted, um, a craze that would really sustain itself through most of the 90s. And um, Tesla was probably one of the first bands to have commercial success out of it. Um, but the whole acoustic thing was a big thing in the 1990s and bigger and bigger artists eventually jumped on board. And, you know, to this day, there's a few bands where they're one of their main albums is, you know, like their MTV Unplugged album. So uh-huh. I, I kind of liked MTV Unplugged. It was all right. I mean, I, I didn't like hate it, but I just after a while, I got tired of it. It became a little bit of a gimmick. I thought pretty much. Yeah. But at this point it was still fresh. And um, so, but Tesla's there, they will be one exception to the hair metal rule, which um, probably the only exception. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to have a lot more hair metal. Stay tuned. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Next up for you, I believe this is a benefit album. Number 38 is red hot plus blue by various artists. Um, yeah, this is a skip. It was a benefit album. It was covers of Cole Porter songs for AIDS, I think. Right. So, yeah. But skipping it. Um, 37 you, you for don't... you is um, Julio Iglesias with Starry Night. This is a skip. I mean, why? <laughs> why do I need to talk about this? Yeah. Uh, which brings us to... <laughs> I don't even know what to say about this. Number 36, Refugees of the Heart by Steve Winwood. Uh, this is also a skip. It's oh, boo. Yeah, it's it's like 80s Steve Winwood, but somehow more boring. At least yeah. that's what I got from like kind of like previewing the tracks from this one. I, I think I'll mention this during one of the songs, but we are at the height of the worst of production values, meaning they were way too clean. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, 35 for you is New Kids on the Block was Step by Step. Well, every t- time I think of New Kids on the Block, because I think we had new, new Kids on the Block in a previous podcast. And I mentioned that I was basically aged out on boy bands. And there hadn't been, other than New Edition, there hadn't been a boy band, really, that was prominent in the 80s, for at least for my generation anyway so i'd aged out on new kids and i was like oh these guys are a bunch of uh you know this is all bullshit for the masses basically was my attitude but the other thing i think the other thing i think about with new kids on the block is that um is me and my other my other um dorm mates and later on roommates hazing our one college roommate who had a couple of new kids albums Mm-hmm. we hazed him so much on this that he eventually made a big show out of smashing them and asked if we were <laughs> asked if we were happy that he finally got rid of him. And we were like, no, we're not fucking happy. You're a 20 year old man who owned new kids on the block albums. What the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> right. Dude, pretty ruthless. Looking back. I mean, these guys aren't really any worse than any of the other boy bands of any other era. Really? Uh, mm-hmm. This is my era. So I cannot enjoy them. I ironically, as I mentioned, 
Not when they're shouting at the beginning of uh, step by step, like they're the temptations or something. And then, <laughs> and then the video for tonight, which is from this album features Donnie Wahlberg wearing a Luke Skywalker records school jacket, which is peak 1990, 91 uh, <laughs> fashion. Yeah. It did, it did have that going for it, but um, yeah, you know, you think, I don't know. I don't know what people think of new kids on the block. I, I actually kind of thought they were over by this point, but this chart proves otherwise. They're, we're not done with them yet. They, they didn't have much long to go. It was like a few months after this. Yeah, I mean, but they're like down, even like some of their earlier albums are down below the top 40, and it's like, geez, the hell. Yeah, I yeah, think exactly. I, I guess in 1991, that was the year I lived kind of in my animal house existence and just paid absolutely no attention to most of this stuff. But so. right. See, well, I mean, I where we lived, or at least where I lived in Ohio, we were, like, surrounded by, like, preteen girls in our neighborhood. Like, all of them, like, loved these guys. So I had to hear, like, about these guys and hear their music constantly. Well, that would make it was since you just were, the worst. You were a preteen <laughs> yourself at that point, basically, right? Yeah, yeah. Still, like, a couple months left of being a preteen but yeah i was making some fine fashion choices back then i'm glad there's not a lot of pictures of me from this period right yeah exactly i know i had this really ugly ass red and white like sweat i don't even know what the hell kind of sweater it was it was brutal <laughs> just terrible. right anyway number 34 for you another classic damn yankees self-titled <laughs> this is the super group that absolutely no one wanted. Um, you have the Nuge, uh, Jack Blades from Night Ranger, Tommy Shaw from Styx, and Michael Cardelloni, who was just a session guy. Uh, but his wiki bio mentions that he's an ardent fan of Charlie Chaplin and a fan of the Cleveland Indians. So he has that going for it. But... Uh, what I listened to of this album rocked out in the blandest way possible. It was similar to um, Aerosmith's Permanent Vacation, which I had to listen to for an 87 albums episode. And it's kind of weird that Tommy Shaw had such a problem with Dennis DeYoung's ballads and sticks. And then he like turned around and co-wrote high enough for this album, which is arguably as bad as any of those were. And speaking of high enough, the video for that is much cheesier than I remembered. Um, it kind of follows around a Bonnie and Clyde style couple, and they get into a shootout with the cops at the end, and the damn Yankees are in the house with them while this is happening. <laughs> but in the middle of the shootout, the Nuge busts through the door um, with his guitar, like playing his solo, and like bullets are flying all around of him. But none of them touch him because he's the nuge. But that isn't even the cheesiest part of this. Um, at the end of the video, the girl survives the shootout. And she's, like, being led to the chair or whatever. And guess who the priest is? It's the nuge. He even, like, grins at the camera in a very nuge-like way to say, Hey, I'm pr playing a priest. Isn't that wacky and out of character? <laughs> but... Despite the presence of the Nuge, there aren't any, like, Wango Tango-style spoken word bits, unfortunately. Um, he saved that for his for their live shows. 
And here's a quote from a Seattle Times review of one of their shows. Um, Uncle, old Uncle Ted spewed a steady stream of his maniacal, high-velocity, red, white, and blue speed raps, including opinions on global conditions. Um, this whole world sucks, but America sucks a whole lot less. And his opinions on new music. Tommy and Jack got a lot more soul than these rap assholes. And he also saluted a lot. The band even unfurled a ratty American flag during You Can Still Rock in America, culminating with Nugent shooting an arrow into a bigger-than-life-size cutout of Saddam Hussein. <laughs> yeah, it was to... just too easy a target. The response from the young house was loud, bordering on Pavlovian. Yeah, so... <laughs> we have to remember the times. I mean, this is like, what, the Gulf War started later this month, basically. Yeah, I think it was like literally a month after this chart. Yeah, that it started. So there was that was in the air. 1991 was a bad year for bad patriotism, I guess is the best way to put it. So pretty much, yeah. I mean, you can see like a lot of like the start of what's happening now back then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I mean, this album, I mean, it went double platinum somehow. Um, yeah, but you but said I, it was the super group that no one asked for. Clearly, people <laughs> did want this. That's yeah, exactly. out about a lot of this music. I mean, there's a lot of this bullshit that people did want and then abandoned, like, within a year or two after it all came out. Like, nobody was listening to Damn Yankees in 1993. So Pretty much, yeah. I mean they did have one follow-up album after this and i doubt it even i don't think it made it into the top 40 albums chart actually and it would have been like probably 93 or 94 when that came out so i own it <laughs> i'm sure you do as it rules yes <laughs> And, well, at 33, we also have something that rules. Um, Nelson was after the raid. You better believe it. I mean, it occurred to me that we're in the peak period of bands that were made fun of by Beavis and Butthead uh, a few years after this. So you got your Nelson. I believe Winger was hanging around in the below the top 40. Um, who else was in this? Maybe uh, who else did they make? What was the other metal band that they made fun of? Was it White Lion? White Lion isn't in White Lion, yeah, yeah. There, there were others, but yeah, we're in a good period of Beavis and Butthead fodder. Um, but there's no bigger fodder, fodder than the video for the title track from After the Rain, which this video should be way more notorious than it than it is because what you got is is that you got okay first of all it starts with this teenager with an unironic headband which headbands were not really it's not like that was a fashion statement of the early 90s i don't recall many people wearing headbands in that period but anyway no kids wearing a headband and he looks like my friend bryce actually but um or at least how he looked back then and he's getting um browbeat by his uh loser dad he lives in like a trailer out god knows where and he's nothing but a worthless dreamer. Uh, <laughs> but this kid has the uh, solution to the abuse that he was taking. He has a magic Walkman, complete with Nelson's After the Rain album in it. So he hits that tape. All of a sudden, <laughs> static starts flying and all kinds of uh, you know blue uh, effects start coming out of the wiring and all that, or the headphone wires. And then the disembodied life force of Nelson 
come out of his gigantic bedroom poster and suck <laughs> them into their world. And what a world it is. It consists of Nelson apparently smoking peyote with a Native American shaman in an enlightened world where hair metal lives on in Nirvana. And so <laughs> basically the whole rest of the video is just a performance thing for Nelson. And this kid is like at the concert and he's like, this is the life I wanted to escape to. And I'm like, no, just go get back and get browbeat by your dad. That was probably a little bit better. Um, <laughs> I mean, I can't describe how huge that poster is in that video. I mean, it's like if you remember the line from 40 year old virgin where they're making fun of Steve Carell and for having an Asia poster like framing. It yeah. Poster, yeah. That's what it reminded me of. Only this poster was much bigger. I mean, it was like something you'd hang on the side of like um, like a bar or something like that. I mean, it was huge. And I was like, dude, you've made some bad choices. You need to smoke more than <laughs> actually. But. <laughs> This brings us to our Wikipedia fun fact of the week, sponsored by Inconvenient Truths. Okay. There were several issues in creating the album. One was that Gunner could not play guitar. Gunner stated, quote, but if, uh, but what I, what, what, what I did was, I'm screwing up the quote. I took a year off and all I did for a year was play guitar for 10 hours a day, every day. Gunner ended up studying and learning how to play. Another issue was their songwriting. Then another issue was the producers for the album. And it goes on. I mean, basically what it's saying is that <laughs> these guys were, you know, had a had an in with the record company because they have the last name of Nelson and they had like virtually no talent whatsoever, which ultimately yeah. all of America figured out because they became a punchline not too long after that. But I have good news. Nelson are still around. Uh, you know, who could forget their follow up to this <laughs> concept album? imaginator which uh (laughs) was actually put it was put out at a later date after geffen records outwardly rejected it according to gunner quote it was about the machine that is the media the same machine that built us up and was also so ready to tear us down unquote enemy of the people that's all i gotta say (laughs) there they tear down nelson like that so yeah <laughs> i see I, I i did all the all the research for this a while ago so it's like i forgot about some of this stuff until i started talking about it but yeah go check out imaginator it rocks <laughs> okay 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 so yeah nelson were they embody this period perfectly though i mean just a band that basically was a marketing ploy really pretty much had no staying power whatsoever and they were pretty boys who of course appealed to teenage girls so they did sell records but absolutely no artistic value whatsoever other right other than yeah. a video that should be way more notorious than than it is exactly yeah <laughs> anyway next up for you number 32 god blaze of glory slash young guns 2 by john bon jovi uh john bon jovi went solo and guess what it sounds exactly like bon jovi hmm. <laughs> this came out came about when um, Emilio Estevez approached John Bon Jovi about using the song Wanted Dead or Alive um, for Young Guns 2, but Bon Jovi turned him down because he didn't think that the lyrics would be appropriate. I mean, that song's about, like, touring musicians, and I mean, he wouldn't didn't think it was appropriate for a, a movie about an actual outlaw. So instead, he offered to write the entire soundtrack album. I mean, that's like nine or ten songs there, nine or ten more Bon Jovi songs. I mean, who would say no to that? Exactly. 
Um, the songs are written from Billy the Kid's point of view. Um, Emilio Estevez played Billy the Kid and Young Guns too, and it pretty much follows the plot of that movie. And to give you an idea of what the plot is, I'm going to reappropriate a Wes Anderson quote for this. Um, everyone knows that Billy the Kid was shot by Pat Garriott. What this movie presupposes is maybe he wasn't. No. <laughs> so, but I mean, any, anyway, like I mentioned, um, pretty much all this sounds like regular old Bon Jovi. He does try to get rootsy on some of the songs, but doesn't really work because he's Bon Jovi. Right. He doesn't have any talent. Right. And the big hit from this was Blaze of Glory, uh, which Bon Jovi supposedly wrote in five minutes on a napkin while he was eating at a diner with Emilio Estevez. And it still gets played on the radio a lot. And before we actually picked this chart, um, I heard it on the radio and I was thinking, God, it's pretty weird that a song that's very explicitly about a forgotten brat pack western still gets played on the radio these days but um but i mean aside from that song this this hasn't like endured at all and bon jovi only put out one solo album after this which was like 10 years after this so emilio estevez and john bon jovi talk about i i don't know i don't know who knows you think they talked about euclidean geometry (laughs) <laughs> I doubt that. Also, rank the following westerns, okay? Uh, the Searchers, Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Shane, and Young Guns 2. And why is Young Guns 2 number one out of those? <laughs> <laughs> I, I've only seen Young Guns 2 once ever. I, I think it was on HBO for like a month or so. But I mean, pretty much all I remember about it is that um, Emilio Estevez also played like the old Billy the Kid that supposedly survived. And like Emilio Estevez is in like old man makeup. I mean, that's pretty much all I remember about it. I've never seen it. I never want to see it. And since it's about <laughs> Billy the Kid, I'm sure they just took a giant shit all over Sam Peckinpah's uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, which is a legitimately good movie. So yeah, I probably it's probably best I just steer clear of that one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And no, supposedly oh, John Bon Jovi was inspired by the soundtrack of that movie, also, which I didn't hear at all. What <laughs> by the by Bob Dylan's soundtrack from that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, but that's that's not that great. I mean, there's the the actual album that was put out misses a lot of the, actually the better stuff that was in the movie Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Mm-hmm. So, but even by even the one song I do, apart from "Knocking on Heaven's Door," which is a good song, and in the movie is played in a very poignant part. It's when Slim Pickens uh, dies, but um, it's not that great of a soundtrack. It really isn't. I mean, it's it's a lot of weird Bob Dylan incidental. He's basically like going la 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 through half of it, and yeah. So, God, that. It almost makes me want to hear this album just so I can hear, hear how stupid his inspiration is. <laughs> I don't. Right. Yeah, exactly. Let's see. But um, I think this is my long distance dedication. Oh, you're going to roll after number 32, huh? You're going to break 
protocol. Oh, wait. Oh, never mind. Never mind. You can. Never mind. I don't care. Okay. It's 2021. I mean, you could do whatever the fuck you want. Okay. I, I forgot that I was a little bit early here, but. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. Um, let's see. Well, initially, I was going to go with um, Ken Burns' Civil War documentary soundtrack. <laughs> yeah. Which was at number 103. And I was going to do like an elaborate bit in Ken Burns style. I was going to make up a fake Civil War letter. I was going to attempt to imitate Shelby Foote. I mean, it would have been either really funny or groan inducing. But ultimately, I decided that was going to be way too much work. So I'm going to talk about some Dutch rap instead. All right. <laughs> at number 100 from the mean streets of Utrecht, we have Urban Dance Squad with Metal Floss for the Globe. Um, these guys were probably one of the first bands to play a hybrid of rock and rap full time rather than like doing it as a one off novelty type of thing. I mean, obviously, he had like walked this way at Rockbox before this, but um, Urban Dance Squad only played rap rock. Uh, they're best known for their one hit, um, Deeper Shade of Soul, which um, was based on a sample of Ray Barreto's song of the same name. It's kind of a breezy, lazy type of feel to it um, with weird, stilted lyrics. I mean, obviously, these guys were from the Netherlands. Um, they didn't speak English as their first language. Um, it was unique. It got played on MTV quite a bit, and I like that song a lot. But I never really bothered to check out the rest of the album until this. I mean, it's pretty good. Um, the way that I would describe it, and I'm not sure if this makes sense, but it's if the Red Hot Chili Peppers recorded Check Your Head instead of the Beastie Boys. Um, it sounds similar to both of those things, I guess. Um, that's what I'm getting at. But it was pretty enjoyable. Um, these guys definitely should have had more than one hit, and I'm not sure why they didn't. But anyway, I'd just like to dedicate this to all the ducks that categorize us as hard cries, the narrow mind Clyde suckers still holding the poles, and FCU tracked. Um, they'll win the Eredivisie one of these days. So, all right, <laughs> FCU Utrecht is uh, legit. The only thing I the one well not the only thing but the one thing I remember about this song is just deeper shade of soul. Yeah, eh, eh, eh. that's all I remember about that. Them and they and they were skateboarding in a pool in the video. I think they were. Yeah, yeah. I always thought this w- was taken off of, um, sampled off of. Uh, little bit of soul by music explosion but i guess not so i i think they also sampled that in the song too oh. they sample both of them well i'm not an idiot okay <laughs> at least not on this right right uh but number 31 for you is the cure with mixed up why do i keep getting all the fucking cure albums and songs why <laughs> i don't know why I don't know. why does this keep happening I don't really like The Cure. This, (laughs) This is even worse. This is a remix album, which is the worst kind of album. I hate remix albums, mostly. Um... This was really beloved by the critics at the time. Rolling Stone album guy gave it one star. All music in which you basically have to release a piece of wax to get at least three stars. From (laughs) gave it two somehow, so that's how shit this is. But all of that said... I actually don't mind the version of Close to Me from this album. So, and I did yeah. actually make the effort to 
listen to some of this album. Hmm. I like must have been hating myself or something. So, <laughs> but yeah, why do I keep getting the cure? Why? Why? why I, I have no idea. Throw me a bone and take some cure albums and songs. Some thick of it. <laughs> okay. Okay. So anyway, number 30 for you is X by NXS. Um, this is essentially kick part two. Um, kick was a massive hit. So why not record the exact same album again? Um, what could go wrong? Well, what did go wrong is they probably waited way too long to put this one out. Um, it would have been like, okay, if they had put this out in like, like late 89 or something, but they decided to take a year off and do like side projects and stuff like that. So by the time this came out in like late 1990, people weren't as excited to hear like a sequel to I Need You Tonight or um, The Devil Inside Part 2. But I remember MTV hyping up their return and playing the video for Suicide Blonde quite a bit. Um, but I, there wasn't really anything on the radio on MTV after that. I mean, it wasn't like in 1988 when these guys were at the peak where they played them practically like every fourth video. Yeah, they, I mean, were, they were pretty much the band of 1988. Pretty much. But, I mean, this still wasn't, like, a total commercial failure. I mean, it still went multi-platinum, but, um, it, I mean, which was, like, on par with what they did with, like, Listen Like Thieves. But, I mean, it, obviously it wasn't, like, as big of a success as Kick. But, I mean, most of it wasn't really that bad. I mean, it's pretty solid album. I mean, it's, I mean, it's actually kind of good, but, I mean, just because it's, like seems sort of out of place for 1990-91 probably didn't grab as much attention but this one's okay I do remember when it came out and I was like okay music right now is terrible I wasn't I I liked NXS a lot although I got really tired of Kick after a while Um, and I was like okay maybe this will get things kick started in a better direction and I'm not saying that it didn't but it didn't sound like you said, it didn't sound altogether different from from kick or at least like an evolution of it. And then the MTV hype machine got back on them, as you also mentioned. And it was that kind of turned me off a little bit. And it was like because Suicide Blonde was on MTV like every two minutes back then. I mean, it was insane how much that video was on. Um, uh-huh. And it, you know, kind of wrecked some of their other songs i mean disappear in bitter tears i do remember coming off of that and they did they you know it got radio play but it it wasn't the same it was like you know and and people forget too nxs had been you know radio hit makers in america for almost a decade by that point i mean um probably 83 is when they started bubbling into american consciousness anyway so so right. they were vets and they were kind of almost too polished too. It's like, didn't we do, I think we talked about suicide blonde, didn't we? And like Michael Hutchins's silver pants and stuff. So they were. Yeah. Very yeah, much. I think it was on like the alternative chart that we did from like 90 or something. Yeah. I mean, they were very much like in rock star mode and I don't know that that stuff was about to go out of style too, for at least a little while. So that didn't help. Right. Yeah, exactly see but 29 for you we have yanni 
with reflections of passion. <clears throat> I'll bet you think I'm going to skip this, don't you? But I'm not. <laughs> Having done, you know, with some of the chart podcasts we've done from around the world, I'm not really sure why New Age music, which is what this is, isn't just called Schlager like uh, like it is in Europe, because that's basically what it is. I mean, it it's a little bit more refined and it's probably not as guitar based, I suppose, but it's really the actual style of music is not that much different from some of the schlager and like French native songs that we did when we did the French chart and all that. Uh-huh. Not that much off of that. Um, the concept of this album is a whopper. So Yanni's new squeeze, Linda Evans suggested that Yanni do a similarly themed album to play at dinner parties. Um, success. <laughs> so I don't know. I I don't know when Linda Evans classed it up, considering she was only um, 16 years removed from receiving a six pack of beer via Joan Do- Joe Don Baker's toes and Mitchell. So, <laughs> <laughs> which I want to get back to that in a second. But Yanni does look like um, Sam Elliott if Sam Elliott had black hair and a black mustache. Like yeah. Yanni, the Yanni of this period, anyway. So. But yeah, I actually watched that Mitchell episode from Mystery Science Theater like two days ago. Uh-huh. That, that scene is a lot funnier than I remember it being. That, that yeah, it's it's been a while since I've seen that one, but I, yeah, I mean it's hilarious to begin with. Yeah, so. yes. So, but like <laughs> I have Tubi, and uh, some of the old Mystery Science Theaters are on Tubi, and including the Mitchell episode. So, check that out if you. I actually watched a modern mystery science theater one on netflix and it actually wasn't that bad to huh. because what, Joel what, what movie did they do for it it was i watched about half of it it was mac and me which is definitely worthy. oh okay okay it was worthy of their um treatment so but yeah. joe hodgson writes for it again so it it felt a little bit more like the old one it, he's not okay. show, yeah. but but it was it was it wasn't it wasn't that bad, so huh. I was somewhat pleasantly surprised. I just threw it on randomly. I we we have Netflix, and I was like, oh okay, I'll see what this is all about. So, right, yep. Anyway, next up for you, number twenty-eight, "Heartbreak Station" by Cinderella. This was a possible skip, but it gives me a chance to talk about one of my favorite videos to ever resurface on YouTube. Um, the Cinderella Pat's Chili Dogs commercial. <laughs> it originally aired in 1983. And the story behind it is that Cinderella were an unsigned metal band at the time who were looking for any exposure at all. And they had an acquaintance um, who owned a hot dog stand and just happened to buy some local airtime on MTV in Philadelphia. And when you put that all together, you get hair metal magic. Um, the guys are all, all glammed out, big hair, leather, headbands, fishnets, stuff like that. They're chowing down on hot dogs, and they're playing a jingle. And I'm going to attempt to sing part of this here in Tom Kiefer's voice. Pets dogs, the grill is always fire. <laughs> Pets dogs, the cook is never tired. It's 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 hilarious. You have to check it out. I will definitely check that. <laughs> it's, any, anyway, several years later, this album came out. And I was expecting the worst for this one, but really was not that bad. I mean, you could tell that they're trying to branch out beyond hair metal with this one. 
maybe they knew that the end was near. Um, it's bluesy. It's kind of Stones-ish. Um, it kind of sounds like Aerosmith in a good way. Um, there's nothing like Nobody's Fool or Don't Know What You've Got Until It's Gone on this one. Don't um, know what you got till it's gone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, and Tom Kiefer doesn't sing on his full-on, sing in his full-on hair metal voice like he did on those songs. Um, he's a little bit more natural sounding. He kind of sounds like Jack White, actually. And the real reason for that was that he was having voice issues at the time and ended up having surgery shortly after this album came out. Um, it sounds better than it did if he were just like belting it out in that way. Um, the two really. singles for this were Shelter Me and the title track, and I'd completely forgotten about either of those songs until I re-listened to them for the show. Um, Shelter Me isn't that bad. It's one of the songs that kind of reminded me of Aerosmith. It's an attack on Tipper Gore. Um, Rich, Little Richard is in the video. <laughs> um, but the title track is just like really shitty hair metal ballad. I, I I guess they had to have one of those, but anyway, this was surprisingly decent. Well, so. from what I remember of Headbangers Ball, which I watched a lot of back in this period, Cinderella always kind of posited themselves as sort of the rootsy hair metal band. Like they were the guys at the whiskey who would go on and jam for a while. Like they they kind of put that image out about them. And and by this period, for sure, like you said, they they probably saw the handwriting on the wall to some degree and they were kind of almost consciously going the route of the black crows or um the other band that people forgot about that could have been the black crows was the london choir boys uh, yeah rootsy band from this period and they seem to be consciously going in that direction like let's distance ourselves from this glam shit even though they very much wallowed in it in the late 80s but they weren't as bad. I won't go so far to say I won't go as far as I do with Tesla, where they basically were okay. Cinderella, every you know, I, I do remember Shelter Me. That song isn't that bad. I agree. Uh-huh. Um, so they did have a song or two that was all right. They weren't complete shit, but but they were still basically pretty shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's. <laughs> Um, like, they're per- like, like, let's say if Slaughter is in the seventh circle of hell, uh-huh. then Cinderella is maybe in the first circle of hell. Like they'll 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 get out someday. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, them in L.A. Guns or something like that. Yeah, yeah, probably. Let's see, but um, twenty seven for you. We have the Vaughn Brothers with Family Style. Well, on one hand, this is poignant because Stevie Ray always wanted to record with his older brother, Jimmy, who was in the Fabulous Thunderbirds. They accomplished this, and it turned out it was the last recording Stevie made before he died in a helicopter crash at Alpine Valley in Wisconsin. So it's touching, but I also think this sold due to Stevie Ray's death, basically. Um, The album has the same problem a lot of, this is where I was talking about earlier, this album has the same problem a lot of, late 80s, uh, 90s rock and blues albums had. It's way too clean sounding. Um, it doesn't sound rootsy or uh, bluesy really at all. It just sounds like they recorded a blues album and like perfect digital sound, which doesn't really work for that kind of music. Um, you know, I think people forget that one of the reasons that Alternative and Grunge gained traction a year or so uh, after this is that 
some of these albums just sounded way too saccharine to have any kind of real soul to them. I mean, yeah, Bach has soul to it or some, you know, something to latch onto. And these were just so clean sounding. It just sounded just antiseptic. And, um, you know, the music on here is basically Southern soul, but it doesn't sound great. Like it's 10 miles removed from like Tony Joe White or something like that. It doesn't sound gritty at all. So Uh in hindsight, and a lot of people did buy this album. I remember a few of my friends had it, so I've heard it. Um, But in hindsight, it really just doesn't stand up because it's just, it just seems vacuous kind of, I guess. Right. Yeah. But next up for you though, switching gears, number 26, Ralph Tresvant self-titled album. This is a skip because I have a bigger um, new edition related album coming up later. Oh, you do not. Ralph Tresvant was the biggest of the new edition guys. (laughs) (laughs) He he was probably the biggest while they were like a band because he was essentially the lead singer. But yeah, right. he was. <laughs> but twenty five for you is the Pretty Woman soundtrack. Skip. Why does this exist? Why? <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I can't help but think of the Chappelle's show uh, sketch about Pretty Woman. I, I forget that one. I mean, it's the the great the the true moments from movies or whatever it is where. Uh, she's talking to him in bed, like kind of like the dialogue they that Richard Gere and Julia Roberts had in Pretty Woman. And the guy just turns over. He goes, bitch, it's time for you to go home. <laughs> <laughs> you don't remember that? Uh, no, I don't gosh. remember that. And she just goes, OK, it, it, it is. It's it's funny, though, misogynistic. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, See. next up for sorry, next up for you, number twenty-four, <laughs> Cherry Pie by Warrant. Um, on the, the Cinderella album I covered earlier, you had hair metal trying to branch out from hair metal. Here you have the exact opposite. Um, not only is this a hundred percent pure hair metal, they're also doubling down on every hair metal trope possible: big over-the-top ballads, dopey guitar solos. Um, double entendres and innuendos up the wazoo. It's just mind-numbingly dumb. I could feel my <laughs> IQ dropping while I was listening to this. Even if you took off the title track, which is one of the dumbest songs ever recorded, it would still be as bad. Um, should yeah. I have been expecting anything else from Warren? Probably not. Um, the album was supposed to be called Quality You Can Taste or Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is Named after one of the songs, which I'll get to in a little bit here. Um, the title track wasn't on there at all. It was a last-minute edition. Uh, the record company wanted a big um, Love in the Elevator-style lead single. So Janie Lane came up with this in about 15 minutes. And they had to fly the rest of the band back to the studio because they thought they were done and just like went home. And so they flew them back to record this. It was a big hit. It was... Um, all over MTV. Um, let's see. I mean, that video and that song ended up becoming what everybody's idea of Warrant was. And Lane famously said later that um, he wished that somebody would shoot him in the head for writing that song. <laughs> that might be the greatest moment from behind the music ever. I I, I know, I know. <laughs> but um, I mean, there are, there are a couple other hits besides that on this one um i saw red which was 
the big power ballad, which is almost like adult contemporary. And Uncle Tom's Cabin, which I mentioned earlier, which has nothing to do with Harriet Beecher Stowe. It was their attempt at doing like a 60s, 70s mystery crime story song like Ode to Billy Joe or On the Nights That Light Went Ah, the night that the lights went down in Georgia. But the story kind of goes nowhere. Um, it's basically a kid and his uncle see a sheriff um, dumping bodies in a wishing well. And the uncle tells him to keep it shut about ah, keep his mouth shut about it. And that's pretty much it. That's the entire story. And the video for this, which was also on MTV all the time, did flesh out the story a little bit, but not that much. I mean, but it does lead me to the YouTube comment of the week, uh, which is a partial comment this week because the guy who made it rambled quite a bit, but, and a lot of it was addressed to Janie Lane's widow. But anyway, um, Rob, who met Janie Lane in 1991 says, um, Janie and I played Madden football on the Sega Genesis. Um, he played the Cowboys and I played the Redskins. By the way, I kicked his ass. Great dude. <laughs> Nice. And, school's own. and going with the Tipper Gore theme that I brought up on the Cinderella album, the last track on this is a collection of stage banner where they're just swearing and it's called Ode to Tipper Gore. So nice. um, that's kind of a running theme on this chart, I guess. Like four <laughs> or five years after that was actually like relevant. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Way to go. Yeah. I, I'm going to shock you, though. I'm going to defend the song Cherry Pie on one level. Because it was so over the top and it was so insanely like doubling down on hair metal. I almost can kind of halfway enjoy it on that level because it's unapologetically ridiculous. Yeah, I, I was video, I was kind of giggling while I was listening. Yeah, the video, it, the video back then I was like, even though I was way by, I had turned on hair metal at that point big time. And I was like, this is ridiculous. I'm like, this is almost so ridiculous. I can laugh at this. So I will defend it on that level alone. It's not a good song, but um, it's not a terrible song. There's much worse hair metal, but um, yeah, it seemed like almost like they were almost parody. It was almost like a parody. It seemed like I don't think it was, but it right. It It, it seems like it now. It seems more like it now than it did at the time. (laughs) Even at the time, I thought this is crazy over the top, even by hair metal standards actually i was kind of horrified when i first saw it i was like jesus we've gone this low like <laughs> i don't know what i don't know what standard i was comparing it to but um but it's, it's so brazen that i can actually enjoy it on that level it's like a bad movie yeah pretty much pretty much uh but number 23 we have guy with the future this is a skip in um a little note to Guy, the band, you are not going to be the future. Just <laughs> Speaking from the future, you are not the future. So, okay, okay. Next up for you, um, probably the one, I think probably the only album I actually own on this whole thing. Number 22 is Shake Your Moneymaker by the Black Crows. Um, this was the debut album from them. And after listening to two hair metal bands in a row, this was a good change of pace. It's basically early 70s rock. Um, that, that's the one criticism of the Black Crows that always comes up, that their stones or face, faces rip offs. And yeah, they are derivative, but at least they're emulating something that's good. I mean, they could have picked worse bands to sound like, um, but they were kind of 
riding a trend. I mean, you brought this up a little bit earlier um, that a lot of people who weren't into stuff like Warrant or Poison kind of retreated towards classic rock. And I mean, that's a lot of my memory of rock fans um, beyond you, like back in the early 90s, late 80s, is that like hair metal stuff was popular, but older stuff like Stone, Zeppelin, The Who, um, seemed just as popular with teenagers at the time. So, I mean, obviously, when you get a band like the Black Crows that sounded like a classic rock band, they would do pretty well in that environment. And the Black Crows did pretty well with this one. Um, Twice as hard, Jealous Again, She Talks to Angels, and Hard to Handle were all, like, big mainstream rock hits. And they're still, like, classic rock staples to this day. And it stands up pretty well, like, after 30 years. I mean, I enjoy this one. It was pretty decent. It is. It's not as good as the Southern Harmony and Rhythm Companion, which is a legitimately good album. This is a good first album, though. And at the time, it was, like you said, it was a, it was a big tonic away from hair metal. And, and although they do sound like the Faces and the Stones, they're in that realm. But I don't know that I could think of one single song like I couldn't see the Stones doing Jealous again necessarily, not 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 like the period of Stones that they were trying to emulate. Like I could see the Stones of the early '80s doing Jealous again, but not necessarily the Stones of the early '70s. And if they have a if they bear a resemblance to the Faces, it's only because they used piano and organ in their songs. I mean, they don't use them the same way though, and they weren't as sloppy as the faces one i mean the faces were sloppy that's one of their charms so yeah um but yeah this was very i mean this would have been this would have i would have been listening to this at the time and probably championing it way out of proportion to what any of my friends wanted to hear about because the house i lived in at the time i had one roommate who really didn't care i had one roommate who was super duper into hair metal and then my other new kids on the block roommate who is probably also listening to Guy and um, Ralph Tresvant and stuff like that. So New Jack Swing. So I was the rock guy and I was like, oh, dudes, you got to we got to you got to play this. They're like, fuck off. So <laughs> but I won. So, yeah. Let's see, but um moving on to 21 here we do have a classic rock band of led zeppelin with the led zeppelin box set some box sets work like to this day i think eric clapton's crossroads which came out in the late 80s is still a really good document of of what he had done to that point in time uh, but some box sets don't work and in hindsight this was a gigantic ripoff from led zeppelin um it was hard to know this back when it came out because no one really could suspect where box sets were going or where music would ultimately go to where, you know, later on you'd have streaming and could basically listen to all this shit on demand. But, but this was a big deal when it came out because it was the first remaster, quote unquote remastering of Led Zeppelin on CD. Only they half asked the remastering um, because the box set doesn't include close to every Zeppelin track. Um, Led Zeppelin had never had a greatest hits. So up until that point, so this sort of served that purpose though I seem to recall it retailing well up into the $75 to $100 range at that time, uh-huh. which was uh, very pricey for that period of time. Uh, box sets were, of course, pricey, but, you know, they were sort of sort of marketing this as a greatest hits. Um, you know, and then it only had a couple of tracks that hadn't already been out. I mean, two of them are great, Traveling Riverside Blues and 
Hey, Hey, what can I do? Those are fantastic Zeppelin songs. Both of them played a lot to this day, but you know, even a dumbass 19 year old kid, as I was at the time knew that this was basically a ripoff. I mean, uh-huh. um, a ripoff made worse in hindsight by the fact that in the intervening years, Zeppelin has repeated this concept at least once uh, with another box set and released scads of bonus material. Um, since then, it never made available on this or Coda, the supposed outtakes album that they put out um, in the early 80s. So, and that's to say nothing of the multiple times uh, their songs have been remastered since then and better done at that. Uh-huh. So this led this box set has not aged well. There's no reason to own it these days, uh, especially if you're on like the streaming services. So it seemed like a big deal at the time. I mean, a part of me wanted to get it just because, you know, I was a completist, but I'm glad I didn't. And, you know, there's very few box sets really that, you know, I don't know every single box set, but it seems like, I don't know. I mean, how many of them really hold up? I mean, part of it, even in the CD days, I mean, I'm not mm-hmm. sure how many hold up. So because fans would do for individual artists. I mean, most of them haven't really, most of those haven't held up, but ones that are like compilations of like a genre are usually the better ones. I've noticed like the nuggets ones are really great. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, and Eric Clapton's work too, partly because he released a bunch of, you know, like he basically released a whole new Derek and the Dominoes album on that thing. Cause it had a lot of the outtakes from that period. Um, and it served as a greatest hits and it was, you know, you know, covering several different, it almost was a compil. I mean, it basically was a compilation of different styles because he was in so many different kinds of bands, but, um, but yeah, this, this hasn't aged well. Yep. Not a- yep. Next up for you, Matt, number 20 is Poison by Bell Biv DeVoe. Uh, Bell Biv DeVoe were Ricky Bell, Michael Bivens, and Ronnie DeVoe, who are all former members of New Edition. Um, these were the guys who were kind of like in the background of New Edition. Um, Bell was the third string lead singer of the group behind Ralph Tresvant and Bobby Brown. Um, he sang lead, but he never sang lead on any of the singles. Um, Biv and DeVoe were kind of background singers and dancers. They were just kind of there. They didn't really do that much. I mean, Maurice Starr needed five guys in the group, so they were there. Um, when that when the group split apart in the late 80s, these guys were encouraged to go on as a trio by New Edition's final producers, um, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Um, it sort of makes sense that these guys would go on together, but they were pretty far in the background of the group. It'd be like if Otis Williams, Paul Williams, and Melvin Franklin split off of the Temptations or like Jackie Marlin and Tito split off of the Jackson five. Um, But in a way that anonymity probably helped them because they weren't as tied to what people thought about new edition as Bobby Brown or Ralph Tresvant were, they could be a new group without any attachment to any of that history. But Bell ended up becoming the primary lead singer. Biv shifted mainly to being a rapper. And DeVoe kind of switched back and forth between singing and rapping. They embraced New Jack Swing, um, which was pretty popular at the time. And they described their version as mentally hip-hop, smoothed out on the R&B tip with a pop-feel appeal to it. That's exactly how I would have put it. Yeah, and they even printed that quote on their album cover, so everybody knew that they were getting at that. <laughs> but 
Um, they teamed up with Public Enemies production team, the Bomb Squad, and Dr. Freeze for most of the tracks. And most of these go pretty hard for New Jack Swing. Um, just really aggressive beats, but it's still pretty danceable. Um, it's also a very horny album, probably one of the horniest albums ever created. Um, they just kind of turned the knob to 11 on that. Um, the big hit off of this was the title track, obviously, which was everywhere in the early part of 1990. Um, MTV played it practically every other video for a while. I didn't like it at the time, but it's grown on me over the years. It's one of the classics of New Jack, New Jack Swing. Um, Do Me was another pretty big hit. And um, Dope, BBD, and the new edition song, uh, Word of the Mother, um, they actually brought together all the other members, including Johnny Gill, who was Bobby Brown's replacement for that one. Or in the we're in the same wheelhouse, but they did like throw in some slow jams in there, which are kind of lousy to be honest. But all in all, it's a pretty decent album. Um, these guys actually reunited for the American Music Awards about a month ago. I I didn't look at the clip, but I saw a picture of it and. Um, Biv looks very old now. I mean, I'm assuming he's in his 50s now, but he looks uh, very much like a 50-year-old now. So, <clears throat> Did Ronnie DeVoe point at you? Because that was like his big talent. He pointed <laughs> no, he did I'd forgotten all about Doomy. I actually put that on while, um, while we were switching reels, so to speak, in, the, in our podcast. I, I don't know how I'd forgotten about that song because it was on all the time. But uh, yeah, that song's uh, pretty sure that's about having sex. I could be wrong. Uh, yeah, it is. And you, yeah. you undersold Word to the Mother because the actual song title is Ronnie, Bobby, Ricky, Mike, Ralph and Johnny, Word to the Mother. Yes. And yep. What did, what did Johnny Gill just, uh, what just happened to him? I, I don't know what, what, what did happen. Uh, he just got paid, okay? You were supposed that, to grab that was... punchline. That was Johnny Kemp. Oh, well, Johnny Gill just got paid too. Johnny Gill did rub you the right way. Um, <laughs> he also just got paid. I'm not making a comment on the song. I'm making a comment. Just shut up. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> but anyway, number 19 for you. We have the new kids on the block again with No More Games, the remix album. Skip. Fuck no, I'm not talking about that again, but I'm going to do what you did, and I'm going to do my long-distance dedication one song late. Okay, okay. All right, rolling around at number 140 this week, we have Faith, Hope, and Love by King's X. Okay. Uh, back in 9091, as I've mentioned a little bit already, uh, there was a backlash growing against you know hair metal and some of the other uh, tastes of the time, pop tastes. Um, and you know, for more serious-minded people who are wanting something a little bit different, um, you know, we were looking, we were searching for something that we could grab onto, latch onto, and ultimately that became alternative and grunge, but we weren't there yet in early 1991. So we were trying to find it, you know, searching around, hunting for what we might want to have as our thing, like something contemporary that wasn't, you know, our parents' thing, basically. And one of the groups that I enjoyed at the time was King's X, which is they're almost forgotten about these days. Um, you know, I, I guess it's kind of, you know, um, 
you know, the, the desire for something different was really diffuse. Some people were looking for like intelligent metal. That was a big thing at this point too. Like Queensryche was supposedly intelligent. (laughs) You had rap metal, of course, was definitely around at this point. Um, King's X was, I don't, I don't know really how to describe them. They're kind of psychedelic, but they're more in the Beatles wing of psychedelia. Like I guess Sergeant Pepper's style psychedelia, like a, basically approachable psychedelia um of the experimental wing of that they're not power pop but they're still trading in pop tropes like there's a lot of as there is in psychedelia a lot of harmonies and stuff they weren't hair metal at all but they definitely aren't peak period metallica either i mean they're not like thrashing some called them christian rock because they had spiritual lyrics but they weren't a christian rock band they 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 uh always said that that was bullshit that they were kind of uh, described that way they were very literate um which was sort of a streak going through rock at the time as i mentioned with metal i mean in hindsight looking back on them and listening to this album a little bit they were basically tuneful grunge is what they were um a figure no less than pearl jam's jeff amen claimed that uh king's x actually invented grunge so hmm. I listened to It's Love from this album, which was also the video they released from it. And I had not heard this song in probably 25 years at least. And it's actually really, really good. I really remember I remember really liking it at the time. And it basically holds up as tuneful grunge. That's what it is. Um, hmm. For whatever reason, maybe because they broke before grunge broke um, in a commercial sense, uh, they kind of got swept under the carpet with hair metal when when taste did change to alternative and grunge, um, even though they weren't hair metal at all. Um, but I do remember them. And I, I, I dedicate this to the evolution of music and the bands that sometimes get left behind as the music is evolving a little bit. So that's where I'd kind of put King's X. The other band I was going to do, if you had taken and the unlikelihood of you taking King's X was Jellyfish, which is another band that's in that mode. That oh, okay, yeah, yeah. different kind of music. They were definitely more power pop, but um, another band that people were latching onto is the next cool thing. And then once alternate, I mean, Jellyfish lived longer than King's X did, I think, in the public mind. But but they were definitely kind of pegged in the same boat and didn't really have any staying power beyond the very early '90s. So, um, but there were a lot of bands like that that. Um, even some ones that did become more popular, like uh, Faith No More and stuff like that. I mean, they just they're of that period in time. And it was a little bit different than what was super popular. But what they were purveying didn't really last in the public consciousness. So do you remember right. King's X? I, I do. I, I remember the song that you mentioned. And there was other another one called Over My Head, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if it was on this album or the one before it. It was but... on the one before this. Okay. Yeah, I, I do remember the guys being played on MTV a little bit, and I, I did kind of like it at the time, too. It was different because so. it wasn't, I mean, of course, they had long hair, and, you know, it was hard not to have, like, a perm or or at least have long metal hair at that point. I mean, that was just the only way you were going to get on MTV, for one thing, or you know, get the attention of record companies at that time, which you still had to have at that period. So, so you see them and you might think they would be hair metal, but they actually were more like a, that you could say they were a little bit prog too, in some ways, I guess. I mean, yeah, 
but they're an interesting band that I think people have basically forgotten all about. I'd forgotten about them to be perfectly honest until I saw them floating down at the ass end of this chart. I was like, Oh yeah. King's X. All right. <laughs> yeah. Going on with them. Right. So, anyway, we're going to go on a little tour down South here for the next couple albums. 18 is <laughs> put yourself in my shoes by Clint black. Uh, Clint Black's a country artist. We'll have another country artist on here in a little bit. Um, the genre was starting to get big again on the mainstream charts. It would get even bigger in March when um, the SoundScan charts were introduced. Um, there's a lot of reasons why people thought that it was coming back in a big way. Um, the Nashville Network and CMT were starting to be included in basic cable packages. Um, the people... People were moving into the South and like the Sun Belt in large numbers, and they were being exposed to it for the first time on a regular basis, which um, led to a lot of them embracing it. And also the genre was embracing rock and pop at the time, which probably fed into it. And even some people say that like the deregulation of FM radio might have been part of the cause of it, but Whatever it was, it was back and Clint Black was riding the wave. Um, this album was a lot different than what I was expecting. I was expecting it to sound like his contemporaries on the country charts at this time period, like Garth, Brooks and Don, Travis Tritt and stuff like that, like boot scooting, pop country type of stuff. But this was actually very traditional sounding. It was almost like a Merle Haggard record. I was pretty pleasantly surprised by that and it was actually pretty good so yeah clint black is is legitimate country artist i mean he he fits into that mode of probably probably his analog is actually probably more like george Strait or somebody like that that would probably be his he's not quite the same george Strait traded just enough in what was popular at the time to keep his popularity going but you know he's in that mode i think he he I never recall Clint Black like just absolutely like boot scooting and selling out basically. So, right. Yeah. I'm not that I'm very familiar with anything but surface level of what he did, but having seen him, you know, perform a few times, he's definitely not in that, you know, not in the, I'm going to grab the next trend mode. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. But um, number 17, another country guy, um, Garth Brooks with No Fences. This is the album that launched a bazillion drunken-ass closing time bar songs, <laughs> for better or worse. Um, this features Friends in Low Places, which I can understand why it was big, honestly. I mean, it is a classic country drinking song. And maybe it's because I've heard it inorganically over the years, as in uh, drunken-ass people singing it. I've never been mm -hmm. into it because it's just like, oh, God, here we go again. I'm at a bar at 2.30 in the morning and, you know, people are drunk and wanting to sing this. So, I mean, sometimes you could get into that spirit of things. Sometimes you don't. Um, so, but actually it's, it's to be perfectly honest, not that bad of a song, really. I mean. Yeah, I don't mind it. Yeah. This also has Thunder Rolls, which has, it, that's just never done it for me. I don't know. But, um I'd like to tell you more about one of the most famous country albums of the nineties, but I can't because Garth isn't on Spotify and he's uh, diligent about blocking YouTube clips. So I, Oh, nice. I'm, 
sure as hell not buying no fences to like give you the the rundown of this beyond the well-known tracks so he he should just put the chris Gaines album on spotify um yeah i suppose <laughs> i guess have, have you ever seen the the behind the music of chris Gaines? i'm sure i have i don't remember it, it's it's one of the funniest things ever made um I, there was like a clip of highlights of it on YouTube a while ago. I'm pretty sure it's not on there anymore, but it, it is amazing. So, well, I'll have to take your word for it because Garth Brooks blocks everything. So, <laughs> yeah, he's sitting there at home right now, you know, firing off missives to YouTube to get rid of um, clips from No Fences. So, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, next up for you, number 16, Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation 1814 by Janet Jackson. This one is still in the top 20 more than a year after it was released. It was actually one of the last number one albums of the 80s. Um, So you can tell that this one's a pretty big one for Janet. Um, Like the NXS album that I covered earlier, this was a long-delayed follow-up to a very successful 80s album. In her case, it was Control, which was her breakthrough, but unlike NXS, she was actually able to improve on the commercial success of the previous album and um, became a genuine superstar. I mean, she was arguably a bigger star than her brother was for a couple of years there. But this was produced by Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, the same guys who um, produced Control, and her record company initially suggested that she record a sequel to Control called Scandal, which would have been about her family and her personal life, or in other words, like the real dirt about the Jacksons. <laughs> but Janet obviously wanted nothing to do with that. She came up with her own concept, which was about a utopia called the Rhythm Nation, which is all countries, all people united in music and dancing. And the album was intended as the anthem and the manifesto for the Rhythm Nation. Um, 1814 comes from the year that Francis Scott Key um, wrote Star Spangled Banner. And also, R and N are the 18th and the 14th letters of the alphabet. <laughs> but only two or three songs from the album actually deal with that concept. Something that's pretty common with concept albums. And aside from the title track, um, none of those were released as singles. Um, What did come out as singles is mostly just decent dance pop. Most of it's aged really well. Um, The only exception to that is Black Cat, which is her rock single, uh, which I actually sort of liked at the time. I was just like, yeah, Janet Jackson's rocking out. Cool. But this was the first time I'd listened to it in years. And yeah, it's not great. No. Probably, Probably the worst song on here, actually. But... Um, all seven of the singles of this went to the top five, and four of those went to number one. Um, this was actually the number one album of 1990, but um, in a weird anomaly, it, w- it wasn't the album that spent the most weeks at number one. We'll actually have that one later. Oh, so. <laughs> teaser. So, yes, yes. But th- this one was pretty decent, I thought. So Yeah. I've, I i don't have any problem with Janet Jackson. Right, yeah. I had her but, outfit, too, that she wore on the video for this. The what? I had the outfit that she wore in the video for this. I used to wear it. 
Oh, like the the baseball cap with the eighteen fourteen. Well, the whole thing, like the whole leather thing. I had the whole thing. Oh, okay. Okay. It's squared around. Don't you remember? Ah, uh, sure, sure. Okay. Oh. <laughs> Whatever. But number fifteen for you is the traveling Wilburys with volume three. It was named volume three because who the fuck knows why? Because it was actually their second album. Um, it yeah. was done without the deceased Roy Orbison. Um, and this may actually have my favorite song on it of any album on this chart. Um, She's My Baby, which was a single that they released from this rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, it's helped big time by Irish guitar player Gary Moore, who sat in on this. And it's basically a hard rock song featuring guys that you don't necessarily associate with hard rock, which would be George Harrison, Jeff Lynne, Tom Petty and Bob Dylan in particular and this song actually crunches and has a bunch of it, it's basically just a bunch of double entendres thrown together which is fun considering no one in the band was really famous for just wanting to churn out a good misogynistic uh fuck song which is basically what this is about mm-hmm. and it also at the very end culminates with bob dylan singing about um his girlfriend sticks her tongue right down my throat <laughs> she's my God. it's a great but it is seriously that's that's a that's a great song that is one of my favorite rock songs of this period <laughs> to be uh, uh, the clear i remember when that came out i was like what the fuck the traveling wilburys rock <laughs> and, and not that their stuff off their first album was bad because it wasn't but it wasn't like rocked out rock this was like like th- this sounds like something like like the black crows could have recorded <laughs> it's not as rootsy as that but it actually uh, do you remember that song? Not really. No, no. I'll go to it. It, it is actually it is an honest to god great song. Like it is a great rock song. Hmm. Anyway, that's the only song I remember this from this though. But what a song it was. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to check that one out. Stick my tongue right down my throat. She's mine. <laughs> and kicked in Jeff Lynn. It was very incongruent, but I love it. Right. <laughs> Anyway, next up for you, number 14 is Recycler by ZZ Top. Uh, this is a skip. It's kind of boring, um, I guess. Um, just kind of doing the same thing that they did like the last couple albums before this. So it's skip worthy for that. Would you would you call it pish? Mm, maybe. <laughs> okay, I would. Um, okay. But number 13 for you is Poison with Flesh and Blood. Yeah, this is a skip. Why? <laughs> <laughs> Which we could say for this next album as well. Number 12 for you, Serious Hits, live by Phil Collins. This is a skip. Why? <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. You're skipping the ones that you could easily make fun of. Because, I can't, God, I can't imagine a live Phil Collins album from this period of time. Yeah, I, I didn't even like bother to listen to any of it. So. <laughs> I wonder if this the Christmas, and it was probably the Christmas later on in 91, where I got that Genesis had put out their first album. And of course, you know, I had a Genesis period in the late 80s. But by that time, I was kind of already out of it. I was like, oh, okay, cool. It, it might have been, yeah. <laughs> I think that was the, ne- the, the following Christmas. I was like, oh, all right, cool. <laughs> Thank you. Right. Sorry. See, but number 11 is George Michael with Listen Without Prejudice, Volume 1. 
which you have to listen to to understand volume two, which <laughs> never... and George Michael was in an unusually apocalyptic mode when he when he did Praying for Time, which was the first single off this, which came out back in like the late summer of 1990, which was a very unusual choice for a first single, admittedly, because it was basically about our time on Earth ending. That's what that song was about. So um, but Freedom 90 did better. And that was more in the George Michael mode. But as usual with him, it was a paradox because he's kind of the whole song is about freeing himself from the trappings of megastardom. And then he populates a video with like every last supermodel known to man um, of the time period. So it's like, what, you know, <laughs> what, what do you do? In hindsight, this is, I, I listened to this album in almost in its entirety um, going into Matt mode on my album research. <laughs> this is weird. I mean, it's kind of low key. It's not bad, but I could see where this didn't, Go, do well because or do as well as it didn't do as well as faith which is a high bar but there's no surefire catchy songs on it really apart from freedom 90 i mean it's a good statement by an artist who was trying to grow but nobody really wanted to hear that from george michael they just wanted more songs like faith basically right and doing like almost kind of cole porter-ish like workouts on this i mean it's it's very strange choice it's like he had enough artistic freedom to do what he wanted but he didn't know what he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, this is a, it's it, in hindsight, it's a very strange, weird album. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I've only heard praying for time and freedom 90, but I could sort of see like the rest of it being like that. I mean, freedom 90 is very much in sort of, I wouldn't call it, It's definitely not Madchester music, but it trades in a few of those tropes that one piano, sample that he used it seems like it was on every song back then but right um you know and praying for time i mean honestly i remember seeing that like when it first came out i'm like I'm like man this is really heavy for george michael i'm you know at that point people he was kind of a punchline i mean dana carvey was making fun of his, him shaking his ass on saturday night live <laughs> yeah stuff like that so i wasn't expecting him and you know i want your sex and blah 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 from the faith period i wasn't expecting him to like go all apocalyptic on us right yeah i don't think anybody was it's like i want more george michael apocalypse songs he should have done a whole album full of them he should have that that should have been volume two it it, and it wasn't very timely because the soviet union was coming to an end so it's not like you know everybody that actually the feeling at that time was more like hey we're not gonna end the world is basically what the general feeling was yeah yeah exactly hey we're not gonna die in a nuclear conflagration so (laughs) cool yeah although we may have wanted to when this next album came out (laughs) number 10 is the simpsons sing the blues by the simpsons (laughs) this is a cash in uh, album obviously um simpsons were a cultural phenomena at the time debuted just a little bit a year before this chart came out it was the first animated show on primetime tv in almost 20 years it was the first actual hit in the Nielsen ratings for the Fox Network. And that first season was its biggest season in terms of actual viewers. Um, the merchandise was everywhere. You'd see kids wearing like the Bart Simpson, don't have a cow man or eat my shorts t-shirts and stuff like that. So because of this, David Geffen got the idea to record an album based on the Simpsons and have it on the shelves by Christmas shopping season because it was guaranteed to be a huge hit. 
Um, I, I mean, people were buying everything with the Simpsons name and image on it already. So why wouldn't they buy an album? I mean, he, he got Matt Groening and James L. Brooks, who was a producer on board with the idea. Um, the Simpsons already had an episode that was based around music at this point. Um, Lisa befriends um, the blues musician um, Bleeding Guns Murphy. So it wasn't really that much of a stretch. It made more sense than if you had approached like Roseanne or like Murphy Brown about making an album. <laughs> Murphy Brown sings the blues. They, they should have done that. <laughs> they should have. They should have done one that with every prime time. Law and Order sings the blues. Exactly. Um, LA, LA Law sings the blues. Yeah, yeah. But with the exception of the Lisa and Bleeding Gums Murphy songs, um, none of these actually appeared on the show. Um, it's almost entirely covers. So you get Homer singing Born Under a Bad Sign, um, Lisa singing um, God Bless the Child, and Homer and Marge doing a duet of Randy Newman's I Love to See You Smile. Um, but for the original songs, you get one with Smithers and Burns, which are the only like non-Simpson family members who get involved with this, and two raps by Bart. And the raps by Bart were both of the singles from this, and the only one that anybody remembers out of either of those is Do the Bart Man. Um, which may have been written by Michael Jackson. Um, nobody seems to be really sure about that. Um, Groening said that it was entirely written by him, but there's one version of the story where pretty much all he did was come up with a title and insist that his name be mentioned in it. And there's another version where it was entirely written by somebody else, but he just sang background vocals. I mean, who who knows and who really cares, honestly? But anyway, um, they rushed through the recording process to get it out by Christmas. They did the vocals for this the same time that they were doing the sessions for the dialogue for season two. And the video for Do the Bartman was slapped together in two days. Um, it made its debut in the episode um, Bart the Daredevil, which I could have sworn was a season one episode. But that was like December 6th of 1990. And it ended up working out as well as David Geffen thought it would. Um, supposedly, it sold a million copies in its first week. Um, if SoundScan had existed at the time, it probably would have been the number one album. Um, but it went double platinum in two months. Um, Do the Bartman was the number one video on MTV for two months straight. Um, what? Yes. Thank God I didn't have access to Well, I guess I did have MTV at that point. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I was surprised about that, but it apparently was true. Um, but this was huge, It, but it's basically become a punchline and deservedly so. Um, when I was listening to this, I was just thinking, why does this exist? And the show itself has taken its own shot at this album and do the Bartman in like multiple episodes over the years. So like, whoever ran the show after season two felt the same way as I did. But, I mean, this is just, like, a total relic of this era. <laughs> well, and the thing to remember is that the Simpsons themselves evolved. I mean, their early few seasons, you know, really until Conan O'Brien took over as running that show, you know, you didn't have dopey Homer. You had angry Homer, you know, in the early episodes. It wasn't yeah. as 
silly as it got about maybe a year or two after this, uh, which is what many people consider to be the, you know, the classic period of the Simpsons. I mean, those early episodes are much more, you know, actually closer to like sitcoms really were at that time. I mean, you know, they were more heartfelt and stuff like that, which means, frankly, they're not as funny. Exactly. And I don't yeah. think those early seasons of The Simpsons hold up very well uh, because, you know, they were still developing the characters and all that. You know, it, it didn't really take off, frankly, until they made Homer a complete moron, which he was not in necessarily in the early episodes of The Pretty Simpsons. Pretty much. So, I mean, that comes out on the album. Like, whenever he appears on here, he's, like, basically just, like, yelling at Bart. <laughs> Yeah, he was pissed. He was pissed off Homer. He was like, uh, so, you know, so this probably reflects that. And it, and it was a cash in. It was stupid. Even at the time, I was like, you know, I like the Simpsons, but this is this is too much. Pretty much. Exactly. <laughs> but at number nine for you, we have ACDC with Razor's Edge. The commercial comeback of ACDC was sort of weird, but I guess also kind of predictable because I'd also put them in the uh list of bands that you know was among the groups that some turned to as an antidote to hair metal even if they preceded the hair metal genre itself um but you know they'd really kind of been out of the spotlight for a while at least in terms of popularity um so this was sort of their this was their comeback or their second comeback depending on how you want to look at it i mean thunderstruck which came from this album hit a nerve unfortunately i never hear the fucking end of it because it's required to be played at every sporting event by the geneva convention i think but um and acdc was really evolving as a band with song titles like mistress for christmas and got you by the balls <laughs> so they were really evolving their sound but that's what acdc was i mean um they just periodically seemed to like float back up to the surface and this was one of the this was their biggest album since probably for those about to rock i would think so um so ACDC is kind of like always there and they just kind of float to the surface once in a while. And this is one of the times they did. Yeah, this was when I was really into ACDC, too. I've, I I had a copy of this on tape. So I, I, I was really I into Thunderstruck when it came out. I, I think you made me like a mixtape of just like various stuff from their career, which I played to death, too. So I and I did have most of their albums on cassette at one point so yeah so i mean i like acdc but i'm more i have more of a delineation these days like i want to hear bon scott era acdc oh definitely yeah i'm gonna listen to acdc from the brian johnson era it's basically just confined to back in black which is a good album but um yeah i don't really need to hear razor's edge though right yeah you know what i do need to hear what Number eight, Wilson Phillips. <laughs> yeah, um, the daughters of Brian Wilson and the daughter of John and Michelle Phillips teaming up to create some of the blandest adult contemporary music ever created. Um, they're childhood friends. Um, their dads played basketball together when they were kids, and they kind of got together from that and became friends. But um, the one big hit from this was Hold On. I'm, I'm assuming everyone on earth is familiar with that one. So I'm not really going to go into detail about that one, but every other song on this album sounds like, hold on. It's like 10 versions of that song in a row. Uh, they, they even cover Tim Harden's reason to believe. 
And they even managed to make that sound like hold on. I didn't even think that was possible, but they did it. So um, that's the one accomplishment for Wilson Phillips here. It wasn't the worst album that I had to listen to for this show, but it was pretty bad. I'm just going to leave it at that. (laughs) So I have two things. First of all, um, I forgot the first one. Secondly, Brian Wilson playing basketball is something I want to see. I, I hope he would go out there and just start schooling. People. <laughs> like, it would it wouldn't be pretty funny. Apparently, he was like a like a pretty decent like high school athlete from well, I, according I to it, legend. Probably not in the eighties. Yeah, I mean, that'd just be hilarious if he was just like doing step backs and right like talking shit to uh, John Phillips and stuff like that. Like, like uh, they could play make it, take it. And he's like, I'm keeping this ball and I'm never giving it up. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck you. But um, actually, I mean, there were like a couple um, NBA people that were like in the beach plays orbit though. Um, Stan love was Mike love's brother. Uh, he played in the NBA in the seventies and um, his son plays now so oh uh yeah um for the for the calves right or he's not or was on the yeah yeah i oh i i I think i did know that and i forgot about it yeah yeah so i thought you were gonna bob love who played for the chicago bulls was like related to mike love that would not no 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 (laughs) that would not that would not be correct yeah yeah exactly but um, number seven for you, we have Paul Simon with Rhythm of the Saints. Where in the world are we going for this week's Paul Simon Cultural Appropriation Tour? <laughs> in the globe, and we're spinning it, and we're spinning it, and we're spinning it. And I put my finger on it, and it landed in Brazil. <laughs> so, yes, Simon is mining the culture of Brazil, especially for the lead single, The Obvious Child. I, I torture myself and listen to a lot of this, and it just seems like... Simon was just swimming in Sting's wake. That's basically what he was doing at this stage of his career. Or Sting was singing in the wake that Paul Simon had created with Graceland and all that. It's hard to know. They kind of run together. But um, this is for music. I think listening to a lot of this, this is for music who are for people who are intellectually inclined, but who need a conduit like Simon to actually listen to what world music is. In other words, it's kind of exotic adult contemporary music. That's basically what it is. Uh-huh. And the funny thing is I'm basically the same age now as Simon was then when he recorded this. So in theory, this should be pointed right at my current demographic, Yeah, but I think it's produced and it seeks, it seeks soul, but it has very little of it. It just seems like it's a museum piece. Yeah. Like, here yeah, we go. Brazil. It's like one of those old, if you ever watch TCM, they show these old ass, 1940s documentaries about various countries of the world at the time. They are interesting because they're a slice of what people saw back then, but they're so, you know, it's like you're getting a picture of it, but you're not really getting it. That's kind of what this is. So, and with, as to my horror, because I had been listening to this, I went in my car the other day (laughs) and plugged my phone in and Spotify came up and this album started playing. I'm like, Whoa, no, 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 no. I'll do that. Yeah. Put on. So, which the album I was actually looking for was number six, Some People's <laughs> Lives by Ben Midler. This was, 
the follow-up to the Beaches soundtrack, which was pretty big success for her. Uh, when Beneath My Wings was a huge hit. And because it was such a huge hit, she decided to temporarily take a break from her acting career, which was like her focus <laughs> in like the 80s, and put out another album right away, which was this. It's a, a mix of 40s and 50s traditional style pop with um, like some of the worst adult contemporary dreck ever. Um, the worst culprit on here is From a Distance, which is essentially Wind Beneath My Wings Part 2. Um, it, no. it, it's... Yeah. <laughs> I hate that song. <laughs> it, it took off on the singles chart during the lead up to the Iraq War. Um, it was everywhere around then, and it was really annoying. Um, it was embraced by the soldiers stationed in Saudi Arabia as an anthem of some sort. Um, it was like very highly requested on our forces radio at the time. And I found a couple articles from around this time period about that phenomena. And all of them featured quotes from the woman who wrote the song, a woman named Julie Gold, um, saying that she was like completely baffled by it because it's an anti-war song. Um, she didn't know why they were like, so obsessed with it but i am not either did saddam hussein like dose us or something like that what the hell is that all about i didn't i i if i ever knew that at all i'd forgotten all about yeah it. yeah I, yeah i don't know it's it's weird but it's um anyway uh, the rest of this album isn't really that much better than from a distance um for the for the top 10 albums i did listen to like the full albums um, th this is the first time I listened to a full Bud Midler album, and I mean, it really wasn't. Why did you do that? Why I, it, it Why wasn't really that, that great of an experience? I don't recommend it. I, I I mean, I did listen to like a few tracks for like the ones below ten, but I did make a point of listening to the top ten. So yeah, I did listen to The Simpsons sing oh, the blues God. in its entirety. Also, so Jesus. <laughs> Christ, why did you torture yourself like that? This is why I don't want to pick album charts anymore. I don't want to do that to you. <laughs> I don't want to do you like that. Why? There is no way in hell I would have listened to that whole album. Uh, yeah. I, it's... I, I enjoy this podcast, but I am not, do not kill yourself. That is beyond, <laughs> that, you deserve a Congressional Medal of Honor for that. <laughs> okay, okay. That is above and beyond the call of duty. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I can't believe that. Right. Oh my Lord. <laughs> uh, and here I'm sitting here giggling because all I could do is picture <laughs> Beth Midler singing uh, songs from beaches while on beaches of yore, like in war times. <laughs> like if saying that, because didn't the video have her like in a kind of a typical beach scene, like blowing dress around and she's walking around on the beach? I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Is that, from the, yeah. Is that from the movie beaches? I don't know. But I was like, had that image in my head only it's omaha beach or <laughs> like, like the like okinawa or something in world war ii i mean like bet midler walking around in a total war zone <laughs> like like trying to avoid tank traps and shit yeah yeah <laughs> or getting killed one or the All other right because that song is horrible. Right. from a distance is god awful god yeah it is so it is and you listen to the whole album well, how did you avoid throwing yourself out your own window? I, I have no idea. <laughs> I would have. You should have. That would have been justifiable. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. 
But anyway, um, number five for you, we have Mariah Carey with her self-titled album. Well, Mariah Carey set a new stand. well, matched a standard with this. The first four songs from this album went to number one, and Mariah Carey was the first artist to do that since the Jackson 5 pulled off the same thing in the early 70s with their first four singles. Um, I guess America was in need of a Whitney Houston sound-alike because all four of the songs that were those number one hits, which were Vision of Love, Love Takes Time, Someday, and I Don't Want to Cry, all sound like Whitney. The album sold. This album did sell, though, 15 million copies, which is a skosh more than King's X sold with <laughs> their album. So I've already gone on and on about Mariah Carey. I'm not going to beat that dead horse anymore. So. OK, OK. Speaking of which, number four, beating Mariah Carey, her inspiration. I'm Your Baby Tonight by Whitney Houston. Um, it's another follow-up to a big 80s album this was her first album since her big mega hit whitney which sold about 10 million copies and produced a ton of hit singles um this one wasn't nearly as successful as that it still went multi-platinum and there were a couple hits of it off of it but it's mostly seen as a disappointment and it's kind of been forgotten because um, she had another huge album a year after this with a bodyguard uh, bodyguard soundtrack um, this was kind of the wall between Whitney and the Bodyguard. Um, it's also kind of an unusual album because she used um, two different production teams with radically different styles on this. Um, she brought back Narada Michael Walden and Michael Mazur, who uh, produced her first two albums, and they do one half of the album, and L.A. Reid and Babyface do the other. So you have of one half of the album, which sounds like something from 1986, and the other half, which is New Jack Swing. And New Jack Swing wasn't really a good fit for Whitney. I mean, it's kind of a mess of an album. I mean, that's pretty much all I'm going to say about it. Man, it got some bad at, bad reviews. It also uh, was below the all-music three-star threshold. <laughs> yes, yes. That's which, kind of an accomplishment like, there. <laughs> really is it's like like i said earlier it's like you just have to sign your name like on the sat test and you get 200 points right off the bat and you know to get three stars in all music so d plus three stars from rolling stone unfavorable five out of ten negative were the professional ratings on wikipedia yeah 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 i i I, I wouldn't rate it much above any of those actually (laughs) so People be hating. Yes, yes. Um, but number three for you, we have Madonna with the Immaculate Collection. I remember when this came out, I actually wanted it. And because it does really accurately capture the mega stardom period of Madonna uh, really well, actually, in terms of the song choices. But then I found out several songs were remixes and I got pissed off because, um, you know, and, and and the reason they were remixes is a very of its time thing that I didn't even know about at the time. Um, the tracks were redone to take advantage of the then new Q sound technology that gave recordings uh, three dimensional sound in stereo. Um, it was clearly a massive innovation because I've never once heard of it. It was used. It was used on several 1991 albums, including Sting's Soul Cages and Paula Abdul spellbound and then it was never really heard from ever again. It these days it's basically used in video games. It's not used as part of um 
uh, audio recordings at all. So very brief, what they thought was going to be a technological advance, and it wasn't. So so they basically did the remix treatment on peak level Madonna, which, um, which is unfortunate because the only song on this collection I really don't care for is Vogue, uh-huh. uh, which would have been relatively recent at that point. Um, but if I'm going to go find these songs on like Spotify, I just go to the original album versions, not these. Um, this does also contain Justify My Love as Madonna was about to enter her glorious fuck me phase, <laughs> which just go through the erotica album, which came out and the and the sex book uh, yeah all yeah. came out within the next year or two which was an entertaining phase of madonna's career so right yeah exactly <clears throat> i can't help falling in love i go deeper and deeper the further i go <laughs> yeah yeah erotica if you don't know yeah that, that was so after yeah after this the, yeah the song choices on this are really good it's just that they're not the necessarily the original versions so it was like eh, all right right yeah so next up for you number two please hammer don't hurt them by mc hammer oh god <laughs> this is a total relic of its age and it has not aged well at all um and yes since it was in the top <laughs> 10 i listened to the entire thing um it relies very heavily on samples of hits for the past I mean, you get Super Freak, Super Bad, um, Dancing Machine, Heavy Scener, When Doves Cry, Mercy, Mercy Me, Give It To Me Baby, and Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, with Hammer occasionally sort of rapping over them. Um, to call it actual rapping would be sort of a stretch. Um, Hammer was mainly a dancer. Rapping was a very distant second to that. Um, he had no credibility <laughs> as a rapper. And a lot of rappers took shots at it before and after this album came out. Um, Third Base famously gave him the gas face. Um, Digital Underground mocked him in the liner notes to Sex Packets. Um, LL Cool J said, my old gym teacher isn't supposed to rap. And Public Enemy did include him in the list of like 900 different people that they thanked um, in the Fear of the Black Planet liner notes. (laughs) Um, yeah. But they thanked him after Jello Biafra, Sinead O'Connor, and the 1990 Jeep Beat Troop. But um, there were, but <laughs> there was something about this album that captured the zeitgeist of 1990 going into 1991. I, I guess people wanted like a guy dancing in enormous parachute pants, occasionally saying "You can't touch this" over an old Rick James song. Um, this was number one on this chart for 21 weeks. Um, only eight albums have spent more time at number one than this one. And it sold 18 million copies worldwide. I mean, what were we thinking? I mean, seriously, what were we thinking with this one? So, Dude, that's why we pray. Pray, <laughs> pray. We've got to pray just to make it today. That's why we pray. That's literally like that whole. Pretty story. much, yeah, yeah. And, and apparently, yeah. he made up like a reverend character that went along with that too, <laughs> which was a yep. like the video I, version of this album. <laughs> I heard this album many, many, many times in this period because it was a big party album at the time, and so yeah, I've heard this enough to last a lifetime. <laughs> yes, yes. 
well, that's pretty much just, all. I just can hearing explain. it once this week was enough for me forever. So. We we need to do a special episode on early '90s rap liner notes. <laughs> yes, that would be. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, from about 1989 to 19 mid '90s, just call over the best top 40 rap liner notes. Because I mean, some of them were literally like, like in an old C- CD, you know, uh, booklet. They would take up like three or four pages. Oh times. yeah, the public the hilarious. public enemy ones do take up like four pages. And yeah, I mean, we they, need to do they a... think like everybody, like people on sitcoms, like people who are playing in the NBA at the time and stuff like that. <laughs> we maybe we should pick out a rap uh, a rap chart from this period so we could do that. Oh that yeah, awesome. yeah. Because <laughs> there's. Some of the disses on there were hilarious. I mean, they'd be even more hilarious now. But even back then, I mean, it, it, it tilted over to rock albums. I mean, Guns N' Roses was doing that on the Use Your Illusion. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. Would, they had like a rant about Goofy or whatever in it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, liner notes from that period were uh, quite uh, well, well, I don't know about well thought out, but quite long and quite um they got it was like festivus they got all their beefs they got all yeah things like kurt cobain did like a pretty infamous one for the incesticide album around the same time period yeah it was like well we have a new technology but we got to fill we got to make these books inside the plastic cd things you know fill it up so let's let's start dissing and and uh giving people props (laughs) yes yep (laughs) But anyway, we are at number one here. God, are we ever. I can't wait for this. Okay. This is the greatest number one album ever. Oh, okay, here we go. Um, Vanilla Ice with To Be Extreme. Gotta, gotta, yup, yup. <laughs> I mean, it's really hard not to talk about this album without kind of feeding into the stereotypes and making fun of it and you know i mean this album was uh, this is the ultimate i mean it's number one so duh but this is the ultimate album that embodies this period of something that did not last beyond the next six months or so or a year after this chart came out because vanilla ice went from huge to a punchline in like no time yeah but at this point he's still huge so um, but this album committed quite a few offenses. I mean, apart from the fact it's a pretty obvious attempt to market a white rapper, which welcome to, you know, history repeating itself of the early rock period, which the same thing was done and various other times where, um, you know, African-American uh, led movements led to a copycat uh, period by white artists. So this definitely fits in that mode. And then there's just the complete lack of talent and uh, and utter stealing of other bands. Like, for example, um, the third track in this album is Stop That Train. And um, Ice isn't ripping off the original song, which is Draw Your Breaks by Scotty, which is from uh, The Harder They Come. Uh, he's ripping off the Beastie Boy sample of that from B-Boy Boolea Bass <laughs> from Paul's Boutique. So it's like the laziest freaking stealing you could possibly imagine. But... I did listen to quite a bit of this album. Um, but I think you know the big ones, like you know um, Ice Ice Baby and and all that. So let's go into some of the non-hit album tracks <laughs> because that's where 
you know, the rubber meets the road a little bit. And part of ice's problem listening to this is he was like five years behind the game at this point. I mean, this sounds a lot like actually this album sounds quite a bit like LL Cool J's bigger and deafer. The only problem is, is that album came out in 1987 and rap had, you know, was evolving at a massive rate at this point. So to sound like bigger and deafer in 1990 or 1991 was not cool. I mean, it sounds dopey, um, but that leads to a lot of entertainment. So you get stuff like, uh, <laughs> I forgot about this. Uh, Life is a fantasy is particularly hilarious where ice asks in the song, he goes, uh, I can't get the flow on this, but uh, let me tell you how it is to make love on an inner tube floating on water while splashing waves on your body flowing and going now pump it pump it hottie <laughs> Stuff like that. there's also uh rasta man where ice out culturally appropriates paul simon uh with his own <laughs> rasta <laughs> track you have uh at the end you have having a roni which is an album ending beatbox workout and i highly recommend that <laughs> for peak what the fuck factor because it's basically sort of ice's equivalent to my world, which ended uh oh, God. <laughs> just totally out of nowhere um fanatical ranting by Axel Rose that the other band members didn't even know he stuck on it, and this isn't this doesn't have that, but just the fact that it ends with ice beatboxing at the end of an album is pretty funny, but I mean, these days, I could see this album being played at a party where everyone's in on the joke because this album is really unintentionally funny as hell. Mm -hmm. Um, But it does remind me of my favorite Vanilla Ice moment. Um, A few years after this, we were uh, drinking at a friend's house. Um, It would would have actually been two years after this. And um, I was by then I was living by myself, but I was hanging out with my former roommates at their house. And one of them, my former roommate from the year before, invited one of his Indianapolis buddies up to drink with us, like, you know, spend the weekend with us type of thing. So um, independent of that, we had rented Cool as Ice, uh, Vanilla Ice's movie Uh from 1991, uh, his opus, I should say. And and by then, Vanilla Ice was passe and was already a punchline. And we rented this with the full intention of getting drunk off her ass and just laughing at it. So um, the one problem was, is that one of the guys that my, my former roommate invited wasn't in on the joke. So, and he hadn't got the memo from pop culture office that vanilla ice was, you know, now to be laughed at, not laughed with. So I think, I don't know what it was in the movie, but I think at the end where ice jumps his, uh, jumps his motorcycle on the bad guy's Porsche, (laughs) that this dude turned around to all of us, and wanted high fives from everyone because he thought it was bad. Oh God! <laughs> and it was like he was the only one in a room full of like ten people who was taking ISIS bullshit at face value in that movie. It, it might have been the most awkward moment in my whole college life, and that includes, you know, several failed attempts to get laid and losing my virginity. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was more awkward than any of that. <laughs> and it was like seriously, like, dude. What are you doing? We're, we're, and it was like we had we were laughing at it, but like we could tell he just wasn't having it. You know, it was like I come on and say something like, uh, you know, uh, you know, why don't you, uh, you know, drop the zero and get with the hero, that kind of shit, which is just ridiculous. 
there's a part where ice jumps his motorcycle and his girl that he's chasing is gets thrown off a horse that part's funny yeah i mean you know he starts calling her cat because her name's Catherine or whatever i mean that movie's hilarious but this dude just wasn't he, he just hadn't gotten the memo and he was like vanilla ice man fucking a and we're like yeah okay so anyway to the extreme it's almost like vanilla ice was so ridiculous that he lives on in a sort of weird kind of infamy but it's like people have it's strange how many people have like actual warm feelings about vanilla ice oh yeah, yeah. and there's a lot of other people who still to this day just hate him bigger than life so um i don't know where i even fall on that spectrum i mean and the funny thing is is that after this ice tried to stay relevant but like he made a weed album mind-blowing yeah stuff like that and you know every attempt he made to stay relevant was like making it worse pretty much i I think he tried a i think he tried to like a west coast g album as well yeah i don't remember what it's called but so ice was definitely i mean he's definitely capitalized on it to some point like being infamous Mm -hmm. so good for him i guess but this album is i mean it's funny as hell basically yeah yeah i bet so bad it's i wouldn't say so bad it's good because it ain't but it's in that mode mm-hmm. yeah quickly what do we have next week um we're staying in the 90s but we're doing a mainstream rock chart which is kind of weird Ooh. um it's january 22nd 1994 okay so yep it's it's it. all over the place so <laughs> cool. all right all right well signing off from one of the worst charts we've ever done. yep yep because we're running out of time okay okay well see you next week see us off do do the best track from please hammer don't hurt them quick um sweetness it's my weakness <laughs> <laughs> all right that'll work all right thanks for listening everybody. yep see ya